This is Under Review, a podcast on rethinking humanities graduate education. I'm June Key, a comparative literature PhD student at the University of California, Irvine. I'm Lauren Burrell Cox, an English PhD student at the University of Florida. Given that 70% of academic positions today are off the tenure track and over half are part-time, we wanted to talk about the academic jobs landscape and other issues we don't typically talk about in our departments. We speak with experts on a range of issues that affect grad students in the humanities, including unpaid labor, adjuncting, racial discrimination, and other systemic inequalities. Each episode, we envision how graduate school can prepare students to use their humanistic training in a variety of ways. We believe that discussions of career diversity should not only offer students ways to consider careers beyond the university, but also to think through structural problems within the academy. A collaboration of the University of California Humanities Research Institute and the University of Florida Center for the Humanities and the Public Sphere This podcast puts graduate education under under review. This episode, Lauren and I spoke to Dr. Rachel Artiaga, who is Assistant Director of the Simpson Center for the Humanities at the University of Washington. At UW, she is in charge of reimagining the Humanities PhD and Reaching New Publics, an initiative funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation to support community engagement and public scholarship. I first encountered her work through reading an article in the LA Review of Books called We All Have Levers We Can Pull, Reforming Graduate Education. During this interview, we spoke about the role of prestige in academia, learning from community colleges about access, and resistance to careers outside the tenure track. We'll play our interview with Rachel after this brief public service announcement. The following quotes and stats are drawn from Humanists at Work Stories from the Field, a University of California data project. Since the 1970s, tenure-track positions have dwindled, and part-time positions now make up 40% of all teaching labor. 25% of part-time U.S. college faculty are enrolled in at least one public assistance program. The number of PhDs with a second job is roughly two times higher for humanities than all other disciplines. In 2016, non-tenured track instructors amounted to 73% of all teaching positions at UC institutions. I learned how to think, and I forgot how to feel. The percentage of humanities alumni earning under $50,000 is more than double that of those in other disciplines. My experience has shown me the reality of being overeducated and underemployable. 52% of adjuncts teach one or two courses at a single institution, while 22% teach three or more classes at two or more institutions. Why are academic humanists so bad at asking humanistic questions about their own practices? 
Hi, Rachel. Welcome to Under Review. Thanks for coming on. Of course. Hi, Lauren. Hi, June. Thanks for having me. Would you mind introducing yourself and your current role? So I'm Rachel Arteaga, and I am the Assistant Director of the Simpson Center for the Humanities at the University of Washington. And in that role, I support all of our programs and events and grant initiatives. And I'm a big contact person for people in the region who are interested in doing work with us, but also a point person for faculty and graduate students on campus, and also increasingly undergraduate students. Can you just elaborate a little bit about the work that you do with the um, Mellon Funded Initiative, Reimagining the Humanities PhD? Yeah, absolutely. So that funding has been really instrumental in helping us support public scholarship at the Simpson Center and on our campus. So when we talk about public scholarship, it's going to take many forms. One form is to think about how humanities PhDs can think more broadly about what they're doing in the world and where they're working, whether that's in the higher education sector or beyond it. So in this case, with the community college partnership, we wanted them to be able to imagine and then pursue if they wanted to, and many of them have, careers in community colleges where they could thrive and succeed and do a very good job on behalf of the students in those institutions. But the University of Washington was not equipped, nor are very many, if any, R1 institutions equipped to train doctoral students or prepare them for that kind of work. Um, so what we needed was a partnership whereby we could develop mentoring relationships for the students um, through relationships with community college faculty in their fields. So we paired them and they would go to the community colleges they would meet them, they would sit on classes, and they had many, many wide-ranging discussions over the course of a full academic year. So this was one component of that Mellon program, was basically to build a space for students to talk about their teaching goals, their career goals with teaching and for students in a student-centered institution and an access-oriented institution, because community colleges accept every student. So this was very important to us. The grant program had a couple other components and I can talk about them very briefly. They're basically summer fellowships for students and faculty to pursue public scholarship in a couple different ways. So doctoral students could pursue public scholarship projects of their own design. So that might be something like um, a community oriented history project where they were looking at a local organization, working with their archives, working with the people who like have very intimate knowledge of that space and place, but then also bringing something to it. Um, and there are many other examples that we can talk about. And then on the faculty side, there were faculty fellowships also, but rather than having them do projects, we asked them to do graduate seminars. So faculty could either change an existing graduate seminar that they were already teaching to include public scholarship components so that they're training the sort of next generation of scholars to be capable of doing public scholarship and have a space to practice it in the graduate seminar level, or they could just start it from scratch and imagine a new graduate seminar, and we would support them in doing that course development over the summer. What was really interesting about that component of the program to me was that the faculty were able to get feedback directly from graduate students as they were designing their courses. So as graduate students and as a prior graduate students and student, I'm sure you can imagine how powerful that was for everyone involved to have that kind of venue. And we learned a lot over the course of the many summers that we did that. So it seems like, you know, collaborative partnerships are something that you really care about in your work. And so we were wondering what it was like to work with the MLA working group on graduate education, how that group came together 
and what it was like to co-write an article with them. I think it's funny that you directly go to writing collaboratively because this is where collaboration is put to the test in my mind. And I can just begin by saying working with that group was a total pleasure, both in our discussions and in our writing process. Um, so that working group came together through the MLA convention a few years ago, but a subcommittee essentially formed right after the working group met. The working group was around reimagining doctoral education in the humanities to be more equitable and just, and very good discussions were had, but one action item came out of it here, and there were others, but this was the one that I worked on, to, to collaboratively write an article. So I was really interested to find out what it would be like to write collaboratively with people that I didn't know that well, but who I trusted had shared commitments and a kind of shared point of view about something. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's, I think the reason why the collaborative part stood out to us is that you don't often see many scholars in the humanities doing co-authored essays or public scholarship or monographs. So it was really cool that so many people came together with the shared values and kind of put it all into a piece of text. Had you done any co-authored articles before that one? No, I, I mean, other than sort of in graduate classes where it was an experimental form for an assignment, I know that that had been a part of my training in that way, but it never felt like something that would go on to be published. It felt like a sort of intermediary step in the writing process that could be interesting, like how to exchange ideas, right, in writing instead of in discussion. But this was really formalized. It's a very unusual approach, and I think it can be a powerful one. It really forces you to think about how you're using language and to decide what concessions you can make and what you can't, <laughs> what you really wanna argue for, being present in the final draft is different than when you're arguing with yourself about that prospect. So I highly recommend it. And I would say maybe too, think about doing that in a non-scholarly um, situation versus a scholarly journal, right? Because like you said, this is a rare thing. So why not start in a little bit lower stakes environment? where if you really don't, you're not going to need that publication for some goal that you have, right, professionally, but that it'd be nice and an interesting place to do some work. That's the kind of mindset you want to be in for that kind of project, I think. Yeah, so that kind of also connects with prestige. And I think that was one of the keywords of the LARB article, right? Like the idea of the prestige economy and valuing product over process. I wanted to ask what was the difference in your view between a prestige economy and, you know, a meritocracy and why, why didn't you just kind of use the term meritocracy? I would say that I was not the person. So this is where we get into the co-authoring difficulties, right? The kind of, you don't want to back, go back and try to sort through where something was introduced, but I actually did that in rereading this. And I realized that the person who introduced that term into that document was not anyone who's listed as an author, but someone we quoted, someone we work with really closely, Vero Barbara Kolb at Seattle Central Community College, actually one of my colleagues through the partnership um, that I was talking about earlier. Um, and she just basically drills into prestige as a concept that's problematic. And she tells us why that is. And she tells us about the process versus product question, right? And how, if we are going to focus on the products, and we're going to forget about the process a little bit, or if that becomes diminished, if our view becomes diminished of the process, that we do lose something, right? And so 
we really wanted to go with that idea of prestige being an issue and being potentially broken as a, as a model for how we think about what is good and what is less good <laughs> in terms of our work and our scholarship and what gets rewarded and what gets recognized, right? And I think that she was making a really strong point. Then the vocabulary in the essay shifts after her quote into a kind of prestige economy argument. This is a different argument from prestige generally. Like what does prestige attach to is an interesting question. How does a prestige economy function is a different, I think a different question. And in that sense, we were trying to define that as basically a situation structurally in higher education. Let's just keep it with higher ed for now, where it can't function, the system can't function unless it's excluding people. This is the sort of baseline idea here. To me, the most concrete description of that or kind of example is admissions. So a very elite institution is understood to be elite and prestigious, partly because of how many people it can exclude. We could put that argument there. An open access institution, like a community college, might be considered less prestigious. And in some cases, and I think we know that this, is, this has permeated higher education and our society for a long time, the community colleges are not held up as a prestigious place to be a student, to work as a faculty member, um, and to be engaged with, right? That this is not a place of prestige. It may be a place of value and people may put value there, but they may not put prestige, right? Um, and in part, that's because they're not excluding anyone. <laughs> and so Vero's insights about prestige and the difficulties and problems with it as a concept to live your life by are totally based in her classroom experience with community college students, which has stretched over many years. She also has experiences with the sort of um, high prestige places of graduate school and doctoral education in the humanities. So she has both backgrounds and I think that's why her voice is so valuable there. And I think what we wanted to do is just think about, not that it's not possible for prestige to accrue to something that has merit. And that I think there's a very direct relationship. I think it'd be, you'd be really hard pressed to find something that has prestige, let's say a book that wins an award. Typically when I read an award-winning scholarly book, it's very good. <laughs> I would not quarrel with its, like, is the, does this have a lot of quality? Did the person work hard? Did they earn that award? Certainly. So that is not where my kind of quarrel is, at least my part of the authorship of this. And I'd be very interested to hear my co-authors take. Where my quarrel is, and with Vero, I think, is sort of once you, even by the time you get to the place where prestige exists, you've already excluded so many people because you have not had a door open to them for like the whole process that brought you there, right? So we wanna question those processes a little bit and say, can we think more like our community college faculty colleagues when we think about what's valuable and when we think about the skills and talents and abilities of people around us? And I think we should, I think that's a really ethical stance that we should continue, you know, kind of continue to bring up and talk about when every chance we get. So we were also, when you're talking about kind of these processes or changing them, interested in what you thought in the article, you talked a lot about having these kind of short-term solutions uh, for graduate education. So could you elaborate a little bit more on what some of those would be? Yes, absolutely, Lauren, thank you. So we use this terminology ad hoc, right? It's kind of like, oh, there's an urgent need to address, for example, career diversity for doctoral students. 
because there is not a one-to-one -one correlation between how many doctoral students there are who will complete the PhD and how many tenure track research focused positions there are, right? We know that this is true. What is there to be done about this? Well, one answer to that would be a reform effort that is ad hoc and taken up with some urgency because the question is urgent and pressing and that's all to the good. And another way of thinking about it would be more systemic changes. And I will give some examples. So I think an ad hoc solution is almost never sufficient, but it should still be recognized as good, right? So an example is if your department is putting on a career diversity workshop once a year for 20 years, it could appear that that is institutionalized because it keeps happening, has a regular occurrence. Maybe it's very exciting. Maybe everybody attends it. Maybe it's valued and people are learning a lot from that. And maybe they go on to um, make the connections that they need to get positions outside of academia all to the good. But to my mind, that's the edge case, right? <laughs> Something still being ad hoc because it's not integrated into the curriculum, into the expectations around completing the degree program. And it's still additional. So if you are experiencing as a graduate student, just as an example, um, sort of additional programming, additional offerings that are, that are being thrown at you um, with all good intentions by faculty and leaders in your department or your division or the graduate school on your campus. I mean, you don't not attend them because they're ad hoc. <laughs> you still go, right? You still engage that. But I would recommend that you question why it's additional. And until it becomes part of a graduate seminar, which I know has, I mean, people can have guest speakers in their graduate seminars about what can they do? What have, what have you gone on to do with what you've learned in our graduate seminars in this program in the past? When that's integrated into the curriculum, I think that that's where you're seeing a more systemic change and a more enduring change um, to the program itself. And that's what I'd like to see happen. And I think that's what our article tries to speak to is sort of that problematic of it being additional versus enduring. That's how I would set up the opposition. The other thing to think about with some scrutiny, with as much gratitude as I feel, and it's very deep, this has been, like I told you, the core of my work to work on the Mellon Grant Program. It is a Mellon Grant Program. So it has a beginning and it has an end. And this is very true for many, many efforts in reforming doctoral education. They are grant-based. And so you should look at that with some scrutiny, I think. Like, why is that? And it's great that they're grant-based if things can be sustained and integrated in, even if it's no longer named anything. It's okay that all of the names fall away, the programs can fall away. If the relationships endure, if the program changes are integrated centrally into what students are doing and that they benefit from those changes, then the work is actually done, right? It's actually moved things forward. Great. So maybe backing up just a little bit, we also wanted to talk about career diversity and kind of what that word means. And have you ever met any resistance to that kind of thought process for how PhDs should go on and maybe work outside the tenure track? And also responding to the criticism of, you know, how Alt-Act kind of is perhaps caving to capitalist concerns for PhDs and how humanities is usually somewhat against that kind of notion. 
Oh yeah. I have, I have some words for you on, on this topic that I'd love to share. <laughs> Thank you for opening that up. Um, I'm so tempted to talk about whether or not it's a capitulation to capitalism first. And so I'll just will. <laughs> um, I think it is. <laughs> I think that in some sense, yes, definitely is. So what's the alternative though? Right. So if you are not going to capitulate to capitalism through an alternative academic full-time professional staff position with benefits, maybe in a city you want to live in, um, are you not capitulating to capitalism by allowing your labor to be um, diminished through an adjunct contract or five or six of those? I would just question that. <laughs> I don't think it's more pure to suffer more. And I don't think that people should sign up for that on the basis of a a commitment to an ideology. That's, I just don't think so. I don't think that that's necessary. And I don't think that should be asked of students really or of our peers, right? So within graduate student cohorts, there shouldn't be ideally a culture that gives recognition or honor to doing that kind of work in, as a preference over doing full-time work that is still in the humanities or still related to something you care about or even in the tech sector, right? Anywhere, like anywhere else, um, a person shouldn't be looked down upon for paying their rent and feeding their families. And I just, I really think that unless the entire system changes, anybody can achieve that. And then you can be anti-capitalist uh, a little more effectively. But under the current conditions, um, I think if that's your choice, you should be, you should make that choice, but not feel that it has to be something that like you're a sellout if you uh, if you take a full-time position somewhere um, for all the reasons that, and some of them are very, very much based in material needs um, that are, I think, very legitimate. Now, at the same time, in no way should people who do take those adjunct contracts be looked down on either, right? Because they're also doing that for the same reasons of survival, basically, right? And also for a real commitment to the field and to what they want to teach and want to study. So I have respect for the individual people doing it. I am very frustrated that the system that's in place perpetuates that and draws students into it as if it's um, really a pathway that um, will eventuate and something that, that may not be there right at the end. So it may, it may not. The one exception to this, and since I've talked about community colleges a lot today, I'll go, go into this for a second. The one exception to this is that if you want to teach in a community college in a full-time role, and it's a genuine goal for you, and it should be if that's the direction you're headed, that you should never treat it as a stepping stone to something else, the community colleges. But if that's a genuine goal for you, it is likely that you will need to adjunct for a little bit before you land a job in those institutions. Not always, but it's very likely. And we've received this advice from people who work there um, really consistently over the years. And that's because the diversity in the classroom at the two-year college is so different from what you will have experienced very likely in your four-year college research university, right? Where you are getting your PhD that you need to show that you can handle it and that you're good at it, basically. And there's really only one way. There's sort of the gold standard of showing how you can do that is to go to that institution and do it. And it'll be on a part-time contract basis. That would be an exception I would make for like using that really strategically to achieve your goals, for sure, for sure. Um, I think that you know when you think about resistance to alt-act careers and what that's based in, that can be based in a kind of ideological situation where people don't want to cave to 
the way that institutions are changing to be more market driven, for example, right? But I would really, I would really just say, like, as an administrator, I work very closely with our faculty and graduate students. And I think it's better for me to have the training that I have and be doing that because I'm better at my job, which is to support them and their work than I would be if I did not understand their work, right? Um, it's really, really difficult to support academic research if you don't have any grasp on it, right? And you can do it um, logistically, but I don't think you can do it intellectually as well, unless you have that background and the sort of high level of training that PhDs have. So there are kind of two sides to the question about all tech. One is individual fulfillment. And is this a good thing to do for any given person? And if you find a good fit, then yes, it is. Um, and then there's a question of the value to the institution and to students and teachers. And I think that the position that I hold and when it's done well, really does add value to those, that enterprise, right? So you can use all the capitalistic language, <laughs> right? You can say all the key terms that you'd find in a business school that I can add value, right? But I'm still doing my work from a humanities perspective and based and completely grounded in my humanities training. And that makes a difference. Thank you. That was a beautiful answer. I always feel like when I encounter that argument about Alt-Ac, it's a little bit frustrating to me as well. It's like, what, what are the alternatives to, right, for grad students? But anyways, if you were to just give a few takeaways about what are the most urgent changes that need to be made to graduate education, what would you say? This is such a good question. You know, there, there are always new articles about what should happen to address the jobs crisis for humanities PhD um, holders. And people who are ABD should be recognized in this too, because 50% of students leave programs at the ABD stage, from what I understand. And that's a pretty large number. We all have colleagues who have gone on to do other things and they have a lot of graduate education, but they do not have the credential completed. And I think that we should honor the educational endeavor that they pursued um, for to the end point that they pursued it too. Um, and so I think that keeping those people in mind, you can think about educational changes and reform as having a kind of sensibility about two different imperatives. So that's how I see it. Because I was trained in a discipline, I care about a discipline, and I understand that people in different disciplines care about theirs. So the first thing I would say is that I don't think that any changes should be made to graduate education at the cost of disciplinary integrity? This is a tricky question. Does this mean no changes can be made <laughs> to graduate education? This is the least creative way to think about that, right? So you could say, we cannot sacrifice disciplinary integrity to any imperatives around us in the world or demands of our students or shifting ambitions and desires of our students about their own lives. That to me is not sufficient but neither is throwing out every disciplinary tradition that you care about, right? You need to be able to do both things. And I really do think that that's possible. I think that it is the responsibility of faculty in our degree granting departments to reconcile disciplinary integrity and changes that are needed. So with that having been said as a kind of preface here, I will elaborate a few things that I think could be done to change programs fairly rapidly. 
um, to make them better. So first, I think the doctoral programs should be more student-centered than they are. I think that that means you would have really authentic conversations with graduate students about what their ambitions are and what they want to do and know that that can change over time. So Julia Kent at the Council of Graduate Schools has done phenomenal research on this through surveys, multi-year surveys, about what graduate students in the humanities want to do when they go on and complete their PhD. And early in the programs, they almost all say they want to be professors. They want to, be, they want to do tenure-track professor role, right? But by the end, that has shifted significantly. So good advising would include a sense of time around this and a sense of change, right? That students' ambitions can change. And that when their ambitions change, they're not necessarily changing for the worse or like to be less exciting, right? They're just changing to become a fit for the person that they are. <laughs> and I think that that is how you build student-centered, a student-centered mindset and a student-centered program to think about what your students' ambitions are at any given time and then support those. Another thing I think that could be done is to encourage collaborative work. So in a graduate seminar, it's an assignment. It could be something that you move toward publication. You could think about departmental websites as spaces where students could co-author blog posts about relevant topics, things like that, or a humanities center. We do this at the humanities center at the University of Washington. Just ways for them to practice, not just writing together, but thinking together, co-teaching. How can you think about people collaborating in the graduate program? And not at the very end, but throughout, right? That would be another way to think about this. Um, and I also would like to see more explicit career diversity preparation integrated into the programs from the very beginning. I think it should be addressed right away. I don't think there should be any shame around it. And I think that it should be undertaken ideally as like a joint exploration among faculty and doctoral students all the time because the world is changing and shifting, new careers are emerging and we want to all be tracking together. What could we go and do in the world and what can our students go and do in the world that will make a serious contribution. And that might not look like the contribution I made as a faculty member or that I am trying to make today, right? That that could take a lot of different, a lot of different shapes. And I want to say a note too, that I, I really do think that we're at a point and we have been for some time and many people have said this, um, that we just need to have a reckoning with the kind of exclusionary practices that are in place and they look different in different places, but they do pertain to race and gender and class. They pertain to things like first-generation student status and many, many other categories of identity and experience. And I think those things should be addressed as, you know, as bravely as possible and as quickly as possible. Um, and I would recommend Patricia Matthews' book, and I think that that speaks much more eloquently than I can to, to some of the problematics I'm pointing to there. A lot of really good voices out there on this right now. So I'd like to see where that goes. I'd like to follow those kinds of changes through to the end and also see the disciplines by the end of that process, whatever, wherever it goes, as still being very recognizable to those of us who have been trained in them. On that note, talked about kind of what maybe the schools can do to change, but what advice do you have for students, graduate students who are navigating this kind of world of professionalization? So I have some advice. Some of it is very concrete and some of it's a little bit more, I guess, philosophical, if I am allowed to use this term. <laughs> I don't know that it rises to the level of philosophy, but they're sort of guiding thoughts, right? So 
The first thing I would say is that you should go where your contributions will be most deeply felt and valued. This is the kind of motto that I invented in graduate school to get through to wherever it was that I was going to be going, because I certainly could not see it in advance. And most people who are especially narrating Alltech careers will narrate it backwards to tell you the same thing. They didn't know where it would lead. You go from project to project and you do what interests you and you do what you care about and value and you will find your place. Um, so go where your contributions will be most deeply felt and valued, wherever that is. And then the second thing I would say is that students should really be thinking about the potential costs of graduate education to their lives and what they are willing and what they are not willing to give up. I recommend actually making a list of things you're not willing to give up and writing that down <laughs> because there will be moments and sometimes it's quite um, incremental. So you might not see the exact moment at which point your marriage might fail, right? But you could maybe see it coming if you wrote down, I will not let this program be more important to me than my partner right? <laughs> or my family, right? Um, you have a better chance of, of seeing it coming and making choices around your priorities because no one else is prioritizing your life for you. You're doing that. Um, so, I mean, mine were like my faith, my family, and my health. And if I saw those being compromised, I took a step back. And if I saw them being okay, I pushed harder, right? To get what I wanted to get done, done, and to take on another project, et cetera, right? And I've still continued to try to do that. And those things might change over time, but whatever you value right now, just write it down and don't let the program take it away from you because that could happen seemingly by accident, but really by a kind of aggressive, um, ambitious and competitive nature of, of the enterprise, what we're doing. Um, the other thing I would say is that I have come to the realization after a lot of exploration of different careers that there is more work to be done in the humanities than I could ever do in one lifetime. So I have switched from feeling like a sense of scarcity and fear into feeling like really inspired all the time by all the fantastic work that's being done and really excited about my prospects personally and those of my friends and colleagues as well. I mean, I love sending exciting job ads to people I care about. Look, you'd be perfect for this. Why don't you think about this organization? And so leading into the very last thing I'll say about advice, you can look at job ads as opportunities for informational interviews. And I think that every single grad student in the humanities should be doing an informational interview once a month from the very first day of the program all the way to the end. And probably after that, because you need to build a network, right? So I think job ads are a little known source for ways to find those people because it's really hard to know how should I reach out to someone or who might there be? And there are spreadsheets online about Altac networks, right? You can find these people. I'm on them, my colleagues are on them, people doing really exciting work are on those lists. So you can take that tack, but you could also take a more mission-oriented tack and say, look, I saw that there was this fantastic organization. I had never heard of them. They're looking for a program and events manager. I've never run an event. I wonder who could talk to me there about what that looks like. Or you think, oh, program and events, that's a whole area of labor that I don't have any experience in. And then you find a different organization you think is interesting. In my case, for example, it might be Seattle Arts and Lectures. Who can I talk to at Seattle Arts and Lectures? Who can I talk to at my Humanities State Council? And then over time you build relationships with people, right? So I think for humanities 
students specifically, it's really important to open that up to think about mission-oriented networking because you do not want to network. Nobody wants to network for no reason. Nobody wants to network in a transactional way. So that's also a way you can think about your ideas about capitalism and sort of shifting the narrative on that for yourself. That if you're not acting in a trans transactional way with someone, then you're not engaging that um, ideal of profit, right? If you don't have that ideal, don't do it. But you still need a network. It doesn't mean you don't network. It just means that you network differently and you network really ethically and you put other people first and you contribute when you can um, versus trying to take from them. And I would say that the network will get you there wherever you're going. Yeah, I think we've been sort of disciplined into just constantly feeding information into applications. So that's a really good reminder of how important social networks are. Yeah, is there, we wanted to just give you some open space now. Is there anything else you would like to add that you haven't uh, previously spoken about? I wanted to recognize the people who were involved in this work and in many ways I've done that, but I just want to make it very, very clear that there have been many people who have made it possible for us to even use the terminology of Altac for me to have the career that I have, for it to not be shrouded in shame or worry. Like this was all done a generation before me. So people like Miriam Barta and Bethany Novisky and Kathleen Fitzpatrick, all of whom have made extraordinarily brave career moves. And these are the women I look up to the most, right? <laughs> just a handful of those people, there are so many. So just knowing that this is an intergenerational conversation and that this is something that, while it feels very urgent for all of us right now, trying to make decisions about our careers, think about what we can do and how we can contribute, that people went before us, right? And they did a really good job getting us to this place where we're able to have open and like really honest conversations about this. So gratitude to them. So I really enjoyed this interview and I thought it was the perfect one to kick off our series. So I'm curious, Lauren, what stood out to you about this conversation? Well, talking with her about career diversity and things like that really made me think back when I was a, was a young graduate student and how I went in. And of course, I wanted to have, you know, like the tenure track job, all that. I I was a, I knew I was a film PhD. I didn't know what kind of film I was going to study. Later on, I decided that would be documentary film because I had actually had some documentary filmmaking experience. As like I progressed through my graduate studies, I, you know, was wanting to be a documentary scholar. But then I kind of got more and more involved in actually making creative scholarship projects. So that kind of made me open my eyes up to Alt Ac and seeing other jobs outside of the tenure track as a way to do that. But then when I kind of started saying that, and it was a little scary <laughs> to say, people kind of took that as being like, oh, well, are you just not as serious anymore because you want to make films or you want to do podcasts? And then, I mean, definitely there were people at my program who really, really supported me with that. But at the same time, they're not necessarily prepared to support a student who wants to pursue something like that. So what did it make you think about? 
Yeah, no, I mean, I feel like I sort of had a similar trajectory to you, except when I entered grad school, I wasn't super sure about what I wanted to do if I wanted to become a tenure track professor. I didn't know know what a tenure track professor was at the time, but a professor right after the PhD. So during the course of grad school, I sort of explored. I took a year off, did language study in Taiwan, I also did some freelance journalism during that time because I had done journalism when I was in high school and I had always really enjoyed it. So that was another career path that I was considering. And when I brought that up, a lot of people also kind of either were confused or kind of didn't know how to support me or, you know, actively kind of, even if they weren't intentional about it, kind of discouraged me from that path. So it was really nice to talk to Rachel, who is in an all-tech position and is very happy, you know, not being in academia. Right. And her job, she works with community colleges. So it was really nice to talk to someone who had a lot of experience with even placing other people into alt-ac positions. Or I shouldn't say alt-ac there. I should say, you know, positions outside the tenure track. Or outside the R1 research. Yeah university track. <laughs> right. Yeah. That we're all thought that that's what we want in the prestige right. economy that is academia. Right. Because there are certain degrees of prestige, right? There are certain jobs that are considered more desirable than others. Ivy League institutions are more desirable than state institutions are more desirable than community colleges. And that's just something that we've all sort of internalized in grad school. And But I really love that Rachel pushes back against that. And she wants us to kind of question what prestige is doing. Are there negative effects of the prestige economy? And thinking about what kind of publics are you serving? What kind of students are you serving? What do you want to do? And it seems like community colleges would be a great place to get to do that because you're serving a different student population and not the one that had to be pre-approved to be in the prestige of the R1 university. For sure. And I feel like it also, uh, you know, like the idea of chasing after prestige objects also makes people more kind of competitive and less willing to help others. And perhaps if we were to kind of dislodge this idea of prestige as such an exalted and desirable thing, then grad school would become a a more collaborative place. Yeah, I love that vision of the future, June. (laughs) I know. One day. This podcast was written, produced, and hosted by Lauren Burrell-Cox and June Key, with support from the University of California Humanities Research Institute and the University of Florida Center for the Humanities and the Public Sphere. Voice work by Mirna Wasif and Kevin Warham. The cover art was designed by Kathleen Martin and Amy Owen at UF Class Communications. Special thanks to Barbara Mennell, Kelly A. Brown, and David Theo Goldberg for their support and guidance.